0: Um, When I was nine years old, um, I I grew up in Arlington, Texas, um, home of Six Flags Over, Texas. You can go to that picture for me, Chris. And Six Flags Over, Texas, one of the most iconic things about it is the oil derrick, if you've ever been to Six Flags Over, Texas. So when I was about nine years old, um, my baseball team uh, had an end-of-the-year party at Six Flags, which, you know, when you grow up in Arlington, Texas, is pretty commonplace. And so we go as a team. My dad is one of the coaches. And as we enter into the park, my dad takes myself and our team and we get together. And he says, hey, He's given us the rules. You know, we're going to stay together. We're going to do this and all that. And then he gets to the end of the rules. And he says, There's one thing. If you get lost, look up, find the orange tower, and go to it. And I'm like, Okay, great. Whatever. I I just heard it, it's my dad, went on, and we went through Six Flags. But wouldn't you know it? You want to know who got lost that afternoon? It was me. I I remember it. We were there in Six Flags Flags over Texas. I was looking at caricatures. Did I say that right? Caricatures. Okay, we're going to stop saying that word. I was looking at funny pictures of people. And I was admiring what was going on and laughing and all that stuff. And I turned around and no one I knew was there anymore. Strangers all around me. No dad, no teammates, nothing. And I remember the fear and the panic of being, and the feeling of being left alone and lost. Especially when there are thousands of people all around you, right? Strangers all around And I remember the the panic and the fear, and you've probably experienced this in different ways as well, but you know that feeling that is in the, the pit of your stomach, the sweaty palms, and all of it just kind of overwhelmed me in the moment. And I froze with fear looking around, couldn't find anyone. I spent several minutes walking around that part of Six Flags trying to find people I knew until I remembered my father's words. If you get lost, he said, you have to look up, find the orange tower and just go to it. We'll find you there. And so several minutes of panic and fear and all those things that are associated with being lost. I remembered his word. I looked up and I, I don't know if I looked at anybody or the ground again. I just stayed with my eyes on the oil, Derek, and I just weaved in and out through six flags until I got there. And guess who was waiting for me? You want to take a guess? It was my dad. My father led me to him even when I was lost. Now we gather in this place and we we have a desire and a belief that there is power in gathering in his name every week in worship. And we do that because God calls us to look up to him. You see, we come in out of I was going to say the cold. We come out of the humidity. We come out of the world and the routine and the ordinary and the custom. And we come into this place that is vastly different than anything else in our days and our schedules. We come into this place because our Father calls out to us with His voice and He says, Look for Me. When you feel lost, look for Me. When you are uncertain, Look to me. When you don't know the answers and you have the pit or the, the feeling in the pit of your stomach that you are nowhere near where you're supposed to be, look to me. Now, I should have known, um, nine year old Travis, that this, this moment um, would, would be kind of a running theme in my life because one of my fears is being left behind and uncertain and lost. And this is a a recurring theme in the life of Travis, where times I find myself in places or in situations or in moments where I'm uncertain, I feel like I'm in the middle of the maze, and I'm just waiting for someone to come rescue me next Thursday, wondering if I'm ever going to get out of the chaos and the uncertainty of where we may be. I used to, as an example, I used to think, when I first got into preaching, I was a youth minister for several years, and then when I transitioned and uh, took the demotion of being a preacher, I, I thought you needed a robust blog, podcast. I needed to get a book out there. I needed to be well-known. And what I discovered over time is that those ideals were not from my father. They were me lost in a maze, thinking that I had to have a certain image or a certain thing about me so that others would know who I am so ultimately they would know about God. You see, this is being lost or uncertain. This is us moving about a maze that seems endless or uncertain or never-ending when all the time, God looks upon each and every one of us and he says, look to me. Which is why last week we looked at Revelation chapter 22, and I love this passage of Scripture. It actually happens a couple of times once in Revelation actually happens in Revelation chapter one. But it happens a couple of times towards the end of the book of Revelation, the very end of your Bible. Jesus and God say this thing a couple of different times. Look, I'm coming soon. These are the words of Jesus towards the very end of your Scripture. I'm coming soon. My reward is with me, and I will give to each person according to what they have done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. And I love those words, because Jesus has won, and His parting words to those that, that read and are a part of this revelation hear that jesus isn't just with them at the end he has been with them throughout their entire lives That their beginning is now a part of him that their life is a part of his that their ending is everlasting in the presence of him the alpha and the omega and if you read the book of revelation if you read those 22 sometimes confusing chapters you understand you begin to to unravel this thread of life that all things exist. The things that are worthy of living for exist through the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end, the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ himself. Now, very quickly, let's get an idea of this book of Revelation for just a second. Um, The book of Revelation, okay, this is our... This is our crash course, quick understanding to the context of Revelation, which I think will help us when we get in here into Revelation chapter 20 in just a moment. One of the most pivotal climatic moments of all of Scripture, Revelation chapter 20. Okay? Revelation is written to a particular audience. Okay? It's not written for an end of time, end of age, certain future. It is written to the seven churches of Asia. Okay, so when John records his revelation and Jesus reveals to him what he sees and he writes down, he's writing with an audience in mind, which I think is particularly important as you get into the book of Revelation, which is why you should always forever be always skeptical of anyone who says, that revelation says this is going to happen and this will be taking place on certain days and times. John didn't write in chapter and verses and he didn't write with us in mind. He wrote with the churches of his day in mind. Okay. Secondly, it's apocalyptic literature. All right. Um, this is a kind of writing that John gives us. It's, it's not fantasy. If you want fantasy, you know, you go to the fantasy section. If you want biography, you go to the biography section. John writes a particular kind of literature that you and I are not accustomed to, so we should understand when we get into Revelation, it's going to be different, okay? Because it's a type of literature that requires difference, all right? It's it's just built that way. But it's important to understand, and I get frustrated with with Revelation because there is a narrative in the book of Revelation, there's a story there. Okay, there is a story unfolding in the book of Revelation. All right, so, um, and I'll meet to, to that last point in just a second, but, but um, Revelation begins by talking to the, to the churches in the province of Asia. There's this apocalyptic narrative that is taking place, and to understand that, we have to have an, our imaginations turned on. Um, when I teach Revelation, and I have for several years to, to teenagers, one of the biggest things that we have to overcome is that imagination is vital to reading the book of Revelation. If your imagination is not turned on, then you're just going to have a hard time understanding what John is unfolding in his apocalyptic literature. For example, this isn't on the screen, but in Revelation chapter 1, I'll pick up in verse 12, if you want to get an example of this narrative building that's taking place, but the, the need for imagination... John says, I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. When I turned, I saw seven gold lampstands. And among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet and with a golden sash around his chest. The hair on his head was white like wool. It's white as snow. And his eyes, his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. If you're not using your imagination, you begin to miss what John is building here. In his right hand, verse 16, he, ha- he held seven stars, and coming out of his mouth was a sharp, double-edged sword. His face was like the sun, shining in all its brilliance, and John continues to build this imaginative, apocalyptic image of what Jesus is bringing upon into his vision, into his sights for the very first time. Imagination is required to understand. So John writes, but that narrative is built, right? That that narrative is built uh, to these churches because John experiences something that he's gonna relay to us, he's gonna reveal to us, in Revelation chapter 4, verse 1, John says, after, these are the, after the letters to the seven churches, after that I looked, and there before me was a door standing open. It was standing open in heaven, and the voice had first heard, uh, that I had first heard speaking to me was like a trumpet, and it said, Come up here. I will show you what must take place after this. That John enters into a place that no one has ever gone before on this side of earth. He enters into the throne room of heaven, and this narrative takes off from there. Now, I promise we're not going to read through the next uh, 17 chapters. I want to jump to Revelation chapter 20, at least in this moment. Because in Revelation chapter 20, we have this climatic moment that begins with uh, Revelation chapter 4. And our imaginations are going to be needed, but we need to know that the narrative has been taking place. That that Jesus, that the Lamb of God, has been has been fighting up against the evil one, Satan himself, throughout the pages of the book of Revelation. And what we have here in Revelation chapter 20 is this, is this revealing that John has seen in this heavenly realm. That that the, the moment is upon us. Where good and evil will now finally, once and for all, decide who will conquer and win and take this place and the people that are in it. Revelation chapter 20, verse 7. This has been building. It's not only been building since Revelation chapter 4, it's most certainly been building since Revelation chapter 19. But let's just hone in for just a second with verse 7 through 9 of Revelation 20. When the thousand years are over, Satan will be released from his prison. And he'll go out to deceive the nations in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, and to gather them for battle. In number, they are like the sand on the seashore. They marched across the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of God's people, the city he loves. Now... I want us to use our imagination and picture exactly what is going on in Revelation 27, 8, and 9. This has been building in the narrative. Evil continues to do what evil seeks to do, to destroy, to devour, to conquer. This has been a theme in the book of Revelation. And here, this moment has been building and building, and evil continues to get stronger and bigger, and it is devouring more and more. And now, in Revelation 27 through 9, what do we have? We have Satan leading an army that is bigger than anything you and I can imagine. What does John use for our imagination? Sand of the seashore. This giant army is fearless, it is fierce. And it is ready to devour at all costs. And this army, led by Satan himself, takes over the breadth of the earth. It conquers and devours the earth. And so much so, and methodically, slowly begins to surround who? God and His people. God and His people are not in a good position in Revelation chapter 20. They are surrounded, they are outnumbered, and they seemingly are on the verge of extinction by Satan and his endless army. This is not a good place to be in. And that's the image. That is the narrative that John builds in Revelation chapter 20, that Satan is ready to win. He is ready to conquer. He is ready to devour and to once and for all take care of Jesus, to end Jesus, to end heaven, to end all that is good in this world. Satan has the numbers. He has the position, and he is ready to go. Revelation 20 verse 9, but fire came down from heaven and devoured them. That's it. That's it. That is the most climatic moment in all of Scripture. Satan has been building for chapters for this moment. He has got the army of armies. He has the numbers and the position. He has surrounded God and His city and His people, but it takes a sentence for God to win. Can I get an amen? He devours all that is around Him. He takes care of all that is evil and and devouring before Him with fire from heaven Himself. There was no competition. There was nothing to fear. Jesus is the victory, without question. That's the story. That's the moment. That's the thing that John has revealed to us that God has given to him in this heavenly realm, that there are battles and there are struggles, there are uncertainties, there are moments of questioning, there are, there are those feelings in the pit of our stomach that from time to time make us question who we are and what we're doing and what may be lying before us. But in the very end, in all things, in all ways, without question, Jesus is the victory. Jesus wins. And it takes Him a sentence. I love that there is so much building in this narrative of Revelation. And it takes a sentence. It takes God a, a moment. As God creates with His voice, in a moment God devours and destroys evil once and for. And we gather in this place Because victory is ours Through Jesus Christ You may be uncertain You may be unsure You may have your doubts You may even question You may Come into this place with great doubt But I pray that if there's anything that you leave here with this morning, it is the certainty that Jesus is your victory. That whatever is eating you up, whatever's occupying the space in your mind, this the battle raging in your heart. The feeling in the pit of your stomach, lean on the truth that Jesus is your victory. Let me pick up in Revelation 20, verse 11, just a couple verses later. The big battle that was supposed to ensue. Now, you think about it for a second. Revelation 20 is a really bad movie. Right, you think about great battle scenes in movies, right? This big building, you get two sides ready to go, and then all of a sudden it's just it's over. There's no fight. Like it's a really bad movie, but this is the victory to which Jesus has has conquered for each and every has he has secured for you this wonderful victory. And at the very end of all days, we can look forward to this truth. Revelation 20, verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne. John speaking about what he sees a white throne and him who was seated on it the earth and the heavens fled from his presence and there was no place for them and i saw the dead great and small standing before the throne and books were opened another book was opened which is the book of life the dead were judged according to what ha- what they had done as recorded in the books the sea gave up the dead and were in it and were in it and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them and each person was judged according to what they had done verse 14 then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire the lake of fire is the second death anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire now you read a passage of scripture like that you're thinking oh no I mean it's done that's that's weighty scripture right there but you know what the the point, I believe, of Revelation 20, 11 through 15 is at the, after the so-called battle has been won is that Jesus is seeking life. Jesus is gathering those who find victory in Him. Jesus is gathering at the end of all days, at Judgment Day, that Jesus is bringing those who are alive in Him into His fold. He is bringing life with him, and he sees what has been done, he sees the choices that we have made, and yes, there will be judgment. But Jesus, and this is where we can take take comfort in this this kind of passage of scripture that the victory of Jesus is life. And if you want a short summary about the book of Revelation, yes, it's a narrative, yes, you need your imagination, yes, it's apocalyptic, and yes, it has a particular audience in its original writing, but the point of the book of Revelation is that Jesus brings life. Life is only found in the Lamb of God. Life is only found in the victory of our God on the cross. Victory is life, and life is victory. Jesus is that victory. Throughout the book of Revelation, we come across this Idea of life, the tree of life. We find that at the beginning and the end of Revelation. The book of life is spread throughout the book of Revelation. But there is victory in that life that Jesus continuously reminds us of through the revelation that he gives to John. And we're like that tree that we talked about last week. A tree that's planted and rooted in something bigger, something holier and everlasting upon us, and we are able to grow into life because of who we plan our lives in. But what amazes me is that the tree that is life is also the tree of death. You know, um, first century folks would see us wearing crosses or putting crosses on the back of our cars after they got over the fact that we had cars and all those kinds of things. And they'd be like, why in the world are they celebrating such a horrific end of life? Because the tree that brings death is not conquered in Jesus Christ. Life is victory on that tree. Jesus hung on the cross for you. Now, I don't know where you are, and I don't know if you need to know this, but Jesus died for you. This tree was supposed to be life, but death came from it. And Jesus took death and said, it is no longer the end of life. It is the beginning of life. Victory is found on the cross and we celebrate the cross. We hold on dearly to the cross because out of death, out of uncertainty, out of impossible, We find life, and Jesus brings us victory in that life. So how do we hold on to that? How do we live forward into victory in life? Well, we do that in the waters of baptism, right? We find that death is okay in baptism. Because baptism is a decision that maybe you have made before. Maybe you are thinking about for the first time or contemplating right now. But baptism is a choice to die. Baptism is a choice to die to the ways of the world and to the priorities of the things around us. To the expectations of, of this place and to others and to live into something new. Because in Jesus Christ, in death we find Life. We find victory. February 19, uh, 19th, 1996. It's the day that I discovered what victory is. It's the day of my baptism. It was the day that I went into deciding, deciding, went into death, deciding that death would bring me life, deciding that Jesus was the victory of my life and that I may get lost in a maze from time to time, but all I have to do is look up and look for the orange tower and to know that my Father is before me and He is there even in the feelings of the pit of my stomach. When I'm tired and feel alone, I go to Him because He is my victory. Because I've been washed anew in his ways, into his life. The beauty of baptism is not that you choose death. It's that Jesus brings life. You Die, but you come up something new, something different. You come up in victory because the Lamb of God, the one who devours all evil at the end of all time, looks at you and says, you are are my precious one. You are living in victory. You are the life that I want to live. You are my child. You are mine. Jesus looks at us and sees victory. I want us to start to turn our attention to this time of communion. Because each and every week we take time At the Lord's invitation, we take time to remember but to declare the good news of Jesus Christ. We eat of the bread and we drink of the cup. We remember the body that God came to be with us in flesh. We drink of the cup to know that our God went to that cross and died for life and victory. And I love um, 1 Corinthians 15. And I, I know there's a lot of Revelation 20 in particular and First uh, Corinthians 15 that deserve more, you know, more time on their own. But, but I love what Paul has to say here at the end of First Corinthians 15 as he's been talking about death and life, the end of time and everlasting life that is found in Jesus. But he says, let me pick up in verse 51. The Apostle Paul writing to the church in Corinth, let me reveal to you a wonderful secret. We will all not die, but we will all be transformed. It will happen in a moment, in the blink of an eye, when the last trumpet is blown, for when the trumpet sounds, those who have died will be raised to live forever. And we who are living will also be transformed For our dying bodies must be transformed into bodies that will never die. Our mortal bodies must be transformed into immortal bodies. Verse 54, Then when our dying bodies have been transformed into bodies that will never die, this scripture will be fulfilled. Death is swallowed up, and say it with me, victory. Oh, death Where is your, say it with me, victory? O death, where is your sting? For sin is the sting that results in death. And the law gives sin its power. But thanks be to God. He gave us, say it with me, victory over sin and death through our Lord Jesus Christ. We take of bread and we drink of the cup because victory is ours through Jesus Christ, and He invites us to know that this very day He has won and that you are His. We're about to sing the song, Whom Shall I Fear? I want to point out one little part of Whom Shall I Fear as we begin to bring our minds, our thoughts, and our hearts to the Lord's table. I want you to pay attention for this part in the song because I love this part of this, which is uh, this is why I asked Alan to lead this song as we enter into our time of communion. Because as we think about it and we dwell on the idea that Jesus is victory, He is victory. You know why we take the bread? Let me just put it simply: why we take the bread and cup every single week because we celebrate victory. And I love this part of the song. My strength is in your name. When you sing that, mean it. For you alone can save, you will deliver me. Yours is the victory. Whom shall I fear?